John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. Have accessed entry 988.1C1423, certificate number 35645. Prison colon ensign All right. Did I say that right? Yeah, it's a coal maze and say one prison colon ensign Wait, what? Exactly. <laughs> All right. All right. <laughs> I have never had to say the word. You know, I've read it online before, but I had to study to sit, make sure I was saying it right. Yeah, I think it takes, like a lot of lyrics in songs, your mind can receive it a couple of different ways. And if you try and put meaning to it, like we all sing songs that we have we think we know the lyrics and it turns out mostly we don't that's where you get uh mondegreens from right if you've ever tried to stand up at karaoke all by yourself and sing hold me closer tiny dancer you you mean it's not hold me closer tony danza it's not only is it not that but if you think you know all the lyrics to the verses of that song i think you will mostly find that you are wrong it's hard to actually do even some of your favorite tunes, it's hard to do them all the way through if you're unprompted because you just know them, not phonetically. I mean, as the song is going by, you definitely feel like you know the lyrics, but. It sort of lends something to that whole Paul McCartney school of songwriting where it really just matters that you have the right vowel. Like, that's right. who cares what it means? That's right. And I've, that's a big criticism I have of Paul McCartney's work, actually. I yeah. feel like I've heard you criticize the song Jet, maybe? Mm-hmm. Is that right? Uh, uh, she's a little lady, Jet. And the Sergeant Major has uh, plays some role in it too. It's something a mater want jet want jet to always. It's not even how you would say the major want jet to oh it's meaningless. Want jet like you wouldn't yeah. you would never say jet to always love you. But it's because he doesn't care what the actual meaning the of the Sergeant words Major are. Major was a little lady, a suffragette. Hey, and suffragettes don't. That's not, I mean, it's a word. It's also it not four the, syllables. It has the it's word not, it's jet not in it. It's not suffragette. <laughs> <laughs> they, they didn't want to suffer. They wanted to vote. They were suffering. So all of this uh, kind of information, right? The idea that lyrics are, this is a, a thing that all songwriters wrestle with. I think quite a lot about the lyrics that I write. I put a lot of 
attention to them. You're well known for your lyrics. But the problem is that I'm in competition with other songs for your ears, for your attention, and for the radio. And a lot of those songs, the songwriter is thinking about something else. Melody, hookiness. Um, You're making it sound like that gives him or her an advantage, that you are at a handicap. You're running a three-legged race because you actually want to say something. Well, unfortunately, it, in pop music terms, it's often true, right? Uh, even a focused listener, even myself, uh, when I think about the tunes that I love the most and when I, the ones I get the most meaning from, when I really think about it, I haven't. When I sit down and read the lyrics and listen to the song, I'm always amazed. Even songs I know by heart. Always amazed to discover new uh, meaning in the lyrics. Uh, sometimes for good or for ill. I mean, if you read the Rolling Stones lyrics on the page, they are darkly creepy. Uh, Mick Jagger often says terrible, weird, weird, racist, creepy things. Uh, but when you sing them, you're like, brown sugar, <laughs> how come you taste so good? And you don't have to think about it. I thought you were actually doing Mick with your elbows there, but you, were, you was, were actually just tucking uh, in your shirt. I was straining my chair, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, thinking a lot about lyrics puts me, I mean, it's in a way a different art form uh, than someone who's just like, baby. I mean, uh, uh, James Brown uses sometimes six words in a whole song, and two of those words are huh. Ha! Yeah. Ow. And, yeah. <laughs> huh. uh, but he communicates, I mean, his songs are fully fledged songs just as much as mine that have 1,000 words in them. I do feel like even maybe the very best rock songs don't read as poetry when you strip away the music, and they probably shouldn't. That's probably to their credit. Like I had a ninth grade teacher that wanted us to just read Simon and Garfunkel lyrics as poems because they probably reminded him of his of his college days. Well, sure. I mean, Bob Dylan was just recently awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature. Yikes. And, uh, you know, if anybody deserves that, it's somebody like Dylan or Simon. But you read, you know, a very moving Simon and Garfunkel song, and it's not exactly Auden to read, Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Right. Oh, uh, good one. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas that would just, you know, you listen to Art and Paul do the harmonies and it just breaks your heart. And and the opposite is true. Uh, speaking as someone who has tried to take poems, because if I sit down and try and write lyrics without music playing or without a song in my head, if I'm just like, I'm going to write some lyrics today, they come out as poems. You're often a lyrics first guy. Well, no, not traditionally, but, I, but I've been experimenting, you know, like, what if I write all the lyrics first before I even write the song? Uh, and what they come out as is bad poems, and bad poems do not translate to lyrics very well. That's funny. They're, they have there's two. You're 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 thinking differently. It's poetical thinking rather than lyrical thinking. I guess bad poems is a big Venn diagram circle, and yeah. rock lyrics maybe part of it that largely overlaps. But there's a lot of kinds of bad poetry that do not lend themselves. That do not. That are not lyrics. Yeah, that's right. And and part of successful lyrics is a kind of repetition. Uh, a pop song is three minutes long or three and a half minutes long for a reason, mm -hmm. uh, for several reasons. But one of those reasons is that that's about as long as a human being can sustain an interest in a That's why Bob Dylan won the Nobel Prize, because, you know, <laughs> every song on Blonde on Blonde is like nine minutes. <laughs> yeah. That's right. He, he extended the form, right? The long, long form. He just wants, he thinks song. we want to know what happens to Mr. Joe next. Oh, where's Mr. Jones going? What kind of room is he going to walk into now? And Dylan's a good example of, of, uh, like strong lyric based songwriting, but there's very little going on in his guitar. So he's just to like, put it, to put it charitably, he's just strumming along 
some little set of chords and really telling the story. And it's more, he's more like, uh, and often even the melody is just, you know, the least amount of work necessary to turn his ballad idea into a, into something you can perform. Yeah. He's not known for his sweeping arias, his dramatic, uh, like warbling high notes. The biggest interval in any Dylan song is how does it feel? Um, but in, in the process of songwriting, a lot of time, and this is, I think, probably true of every vocalist, there is a process where you have to kind of establish what the melody of what you're doing is. You have to kind of figure out how you're going to work. Either if you have lyrics written on a page that are a bad poem that you've turned into what you think are lyrics, or if you're working with a guitar and you're think or a piano and you're dreaming up a song as you play, you're laying down chords and you're kind of starting to fit words together, mm-hmm. where you are working... Mostly in gibberish, uh, you put a few chords down, and you go, and you start to hear a melody in your head, and you you'll start to sing, sort of uh, scatting. Like I was on the counter the day I got to the to the guy to the front of the thing, and then is it the thing where you're just putting the vowels you want where you want them, and where you want a, a hard sound, a hard T or a... And hoping that words will come, mm. at least Priming in my, the pump. Yeah. In my case, and I think I, uh, I've communicated with enough songwriters to know that, that before you put a pencil down, you're trying to hear if a song will be delivered to you. And, and we all as songwriters have had the experience of a song more or less coming fully formed just down. And when you say that, does that include lyrics? Yep. yep. uh, Every songwriter who's worked for long will tell you a story about, and it's often their biggest hit, uh, that they wrote it in a half an hour. Lyrics, music, everything. Is there an example of a song like that for you that that Long Winter's fans would would recognize? Uh, The Commander Thinks Aloud. Really? Wrote itself uh, in a very, very short amount of time that I can, uh, that it's very hard for me to lay claim to. hope the future has access to Song Exploder so they can listen to you talk about that song. That's right. If you if you listen to the great podcast Song Exploder with Rishi Hirway. Um, Hopefully he has also found some time capsule way to bequeath his recordings to the future. We, we might just include it in our in our own uh, in our own metadata. Who Who's, knows? Who knows how those things work? Are we allowed to do that? I don't do we get so. in trouble for cross-promoting podcasts? Yeah, probably. It, probably get in trouble for it if they're not like paying us some exorbitant fee. Maybe maybe it's smart. Maybe it'll get Rishi to endorse the omnibus. Yeah, what's up, Rishi? We know you're listening. Um, but that process, you often get to a place as a lyricist where you've got the song. You've got the chords. You know how it goes. You've got the melody. You've got your vowels and your consonants and your consonetic impact, right? You've got the tune you see it in your head. You could probably even do the the dramatics of how to of how to sell it, you know? If you were singing it live, you know, you know which parts. Sure, you're already standing in front of the mirror with your microphone stand draped in scarves and you're <laughs> saying, "Sammy now, I'm coming, Baba to do, sir." You know, you've got the tune. 
but lyrics are still a, an additional and enormous hurdle for a lot of songwriters. Well, there's always the murmur and reckoning era REM option of just uh, murmur, kind of mumbling them <laughs> yeah. and don't include them with the record and let people go nuts with the exegesis. But even as you're listening to those famous REM records where it's like, what is he saying? It's, there are words, he's using words and, and he's, he's not just like, blah, 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 blah. But there are parts where you'll be like shaking through is the title, but then what's he saying? Shaking through all the day, shaking through evergreen. What? And the, and what a lot of singers. And he's saying neither. He's saying, oh, yeah, you know, really? so, so it really doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't matter. There are a lot of uh, lyricists that don't, and Paul McCartney being one who just decided that their lyrics didn't need to track. Right. Not not only are they not telling a story, but they're not really telling a metaphorical story either. I mean, a lot of lyricists will use lyrics that don't that aren't narrative, but that do paint a very colorful picture. Uh huh. And you're saying there are McCartney songs that don't even get McCartney, to that level. Don't don't do that. They're just making sounds, just voice sounds. Um, burp, burp. He's like a toddler. He's basically blarp blarp blarp. That would explain the faces he makes. Ooh ooh. <laughs> Well, and I'm four years old in a lot of ways. A lot of singers, that's why you hear songs where the chorus is, yeah, 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 yeah. Or, you know, like, hey, hey, hey. Because they have all the energy ready to go. And there's just not a lyric that will do the same job as just saying, hey. Wow, we don't have a word as good as hey. Right. For or, that emotion. Or yeah, or baby. And, and we hear these we hear these over and over again because they there's no lyrical meaning that would be better than just saying yay. It kind of reminds me of the, I was reading an interview with one of the guys from Minuteman and he was saying, he's talking about a philosopher who believed that there were clearly human emotional and psychological states that we do not have names for and words for. And music is one of the ways you can access those. And I guess that's true. Like if there's no word better than hey for whatever that color is. That's right. Well, think about la, la, la. I mean, uh, the use of la, la, la in music, like it transcends time and space. Uh, and it is, it is doing a job. It's not just a placeholder. It's a actual lyric. La, 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 la. And we eat it up. Like if Van Morrison doesn't say sha, la, la at the exact right place, not even a hit. Right. Where, where is it? Or na, 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 na. Like, that's McCartney using up a taking up a lot of vocal headspace, like five minutes, just saying na 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 na. If you don't have na and na and hey, you can't even sing na 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 hey hey goodbye. You cannot. That song would be called goodbye. Blank space in brackets. <laughs> goodbye. And that's not enough. <laughs> no, goodbye is not going to be a hit. Well, so uh, so the seventies, uh, early seventies. We're talking now post Beatles. We're talking about prime McCartney era. Uh, it's still a time when the when pop music and epic pop music is still trying to decide what it's made of. You know, we now live in a world where music has been codified so extensively. There's not, you, you don't really come upon a, a new innovation in popular music very often. What was the last new innovation? Gangster rap. Well, let's see. I guess it would be. It depends I, on if you want to call shoegaze an invention. I think that you could say that we are living now in a post-vocoder world where mm. auto-tuning of vocals became an effect that then 
became necessary in pop music. You will not hear a, an R and B or popular music track now that isn't like auto tuned to within an inch of its life. We're preparing our music for the robots. It's got to evolve into a state that perfect pitch robots can appreciate. And, uh, we're all ready to go for you guys. So yeah, the, the introduction of computers that had the processing power to, uh, to change pitch and tempo and, and the guitar and key, well, and key, <laughs> uh, to make, but specifically the guitar, the right? key, I don't think the guitar <laughs> changed popular music as much as you'd like to think it did. Uh, but that has all cha- that's all changed music a lot, right? There's very little imperfection in that's allowed into that top level pop now. But it doesn't sound like a musical revolution. It's not like punk rock. It's just it's the like, opposite. Yeah. It sounds like even more like it was, but more so. Right. Super, super, super clean, brittle sounding pop music. Airless, dull. But in the early 70s, it was still kind of open season. And there were, you know, there are genres now that we think of as being as established a music genre as any, namely heavy metal, that its early uh, progenitors like. Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath, uh, they were enormously popular. They sold a lot of records and people came to their concerts, but they were not on the radio, not allowed on the radio. There wasn't yet an FM radio genre that could play Black Sabbath. And music critics hated them. So Black Sabbath, although they were beavering away, inventing an entire quadrant of what would become the musical genres of the future, they were completely excluded from mainstream music thinking in their own time. Well, good for them doing it for a audience of like-minded enthusiasts instead of for the money. Well, I'm sure they would have loved the money too. They were doing it for Satan. <laughs> and, um, and of course to serve their dark Lord. Right. Uh, but also they were getting paid enormous sums of money. They just weren't getting any, uh, you know, like the snobby music critics over at the village voice were not appreciating them. You bite the head off one bat mm-hmm. and look what happens. That came later. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout anyway uh, uh, in the early 1970s an italian actor and musician by the name of Adriano Celentano, mm-hmm. who was a, a very early Italian rock star who had become an actor. Oh, he wasn't. All I know of him is this one video. And I right. maybe assumed he was some kind of TV comedian with a novelty hit. But that's not true. He was a straight up musician. Well, in fact, he was a musician who became a TV comedian. Very, very uh, akin to Elvis in that he was 
in the early fifties, you know, kind of a rock, like a, like he, a he rowdy a rocker. Teen idol kind mm-hmm. of? A little. And over the course of his career has sold millions and millions of albums, was credited at one point with being the Italian who introduced rock and roll to Italy. Uh, and then got into making films like Elvis did and became known as a comedic actor, kind of in the style of Jerry Lewis. Um, Every non-American country I've noticed has one of these comedians that is just beloved on every postage stamp and that we have never heard of. Right. You know, like Mexico's Cantinflas was probably the biggest movie star in the world for 20 years. And no American could name, pick him out of a lineup or tell why that's funny. You know, like comedy doesn't translate. Well, and Adriano Celentano is a very physical comedian. Mm. You know, he's a, not super tall, but he has a really like captivating physique. Like he's not exaggeratedly uh, muscular or anything, but he has that kind of slim hipped, ability to move his body that all you have to do is watch a couple of films or videos of him even appearing on Italian talk shows. And you just get a sense of like, oh, here's a, here's somebody who really knows he's conscious of what his hips are doing. I just assume all Italians can do this. Well, and I think that's, and he may play some role in why we think that. (laughs) Uh, Celentano actually appears in the movie La Dolce Vita. Really? Fellini cast him as the rock and roller. In La Dolce Vita. Not a starring role, but he, you know, he, and this is early in his career. Do we have any examples like that in our culture of somebody who starts out as kind of a straight musician type and then becomes a beloved movie comedian when he's outgrown it? I don't know. uh, Hmm. Who would that be? You see Henry Rollins doing a lot of dramatic parts. Yeah. Because he looks like that. I suppose you could say, um... Carrie Brownstein from, uh, yeah, from Slater exactly. Kinney is maybe bigger in Portlandia than she was in Slater Kinney. And she starts out as a, also just very visceral, authentic, say what you feel kind of a stage presence. Right. And then becomes kind of an ironic comedian. Yeah. When she, when Portlandia debuted, I was like, I'm sorry, what? Carrie Brownstein? Like the last person I would think of that would be funny based on watching their show, you know? And here she was like very, very hilarious and a physical comedian, but not a physical comedian like Adriano Celentano. So what are Adrian Celentano's great comedy? What's his comedy resume? Like? So he started doing Italian films, but they're, they're all Italian films. He never really crossed over. Like to, all these other guys, yeah. Cantinflas, Louis de Funès in France. Every country's got one of these slapstick goofballs that for some reason no other country cottons to. Yeah, and when you think of like, like uh, Gerard Depardieu, like, how in the world did he make it out of France, right? <laughs> I mean, he's like the classic example of like a French guy that should have just stayed there. It was some kind of terrible backroom <laughs> deal. We'll take your weirdest looking star, but you guys can have Woody Allen. Yeah, right. You get you get to enjoy the song stylings of Not A Surf. <laughs> um, so, wait, wait, wait. I have to ask. Not A Surf is big in France? Enormous. Oh, I had no idea. They're huge in France. And it's partly because both the singer, uh, the guitarist and bass player, Matthew and Daniel, Mm -hmm. are fluent in French. So when they appear in concert there, they're just very chatty. The French feel deeply flattered. Is Hasselhoff uh, speak fluent German? Is that why he's so huge there? No, and I don't think, I think it's kind of a coincidence that Not A Surf speaks French and is big in France. I think their their music was received well there. For, and it's one of those things. I mean, my band couldn't get arrested in France. Literally could not get arrested. In France. That's good, actually. Yeah, you, I wouldn't want to be arrested in France. You don't want to be arrested by a gendarme. No. 
for whatever, not littering or whatever is against the law in France. I mean, what you want as a musician is to be beloved everywhere, but that's not always the case. It's not always available to all of us. Not everybody can be Adriano Celentano. And he is beloved now, even in our country, although he never crossed over. So he created this song, Prison Colon Ensenine Cusel. And it's very difficult to, to because the, the record is fairly obscured, who is who actually performs on this track, how it was produced, uh, by whom it was produced. But it's a song written by Celentano where the lyrics are meant to sound like American singing, English language singing. But Celentano does not speak English. <laughs> and he is a rock and roll fan. He loves Elvis. He's rock and roll. So yeah, way. the song is clearly in the vernacular of, you know, the Chuck Berry songs or whatever this guy loves. So rock, but he doesn't speak English and he wants to. He wants to sing in English. Uh, and so he wrote a song where he just goes for it. Italian must sound, you know, there's a certain directness to a language like English that can often end with a stressed syllable. Mm -hmm. You know, these uh, Romance languages are more musical because it's often the penultimate syllable that's emphasized. You know, it's da-da-da-da-da. Whereas we have iambic pentameter, damn it. So rock is just iambic pentameter, basically. Yeah. With the word baby more. Uh, but also, you know, we have a lot of sort of Germanic consonant sounds. Right. We're not so loving of our vowels. We don't end every word with an O or an A. We're we're perfectly comfortable just machine, our you know, machine gunning our our words. And even in the title, you can tell he's really uh, grabbed onto these vowels they don't have in Italian, like that long I. Yeah, ensenine. You know, yeah. he, he, that must sound very funny to the Italian ear because. They don't have that. They don't have uh, macaroni. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. Or the Q, that diphthong of the U that uh, we often have. Well, and there are, so, there are quite a few sounds in prison colon ensign cusol that aren't really in English either. Like, because listening to him pronounce it, prison colon ensign cusol, it's like <laughs> there's not a... We don't have all those sounds either. You're like the, you've taught that the Google voice is trying to say the word it can't pronounce. But he, um, he goes for it. And so he produced this track. And what's appealing about the song is that the backing track is actually really cool. All right. It's not a, a novelty song. It's not exclusively a novelty It's incredibly song. catchy. It's got this awesome drum beat. It's got the, these horn blasts that play this bum 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 kind of these cool little hits, horn hits. Yeah, like he's got the James Brown horns with him. It's got a really cool fuzz guitar sound, like the, just the sound of the guitar is cool and the part it's playing is also great. And it's on a loop. So it's a precursor of a kind of looped mm -hmm. music style. It doesn't really, well, the only thing that distinguishes the chorus is that they start singing the chorus kind of at a different place in the loop. And the loop is jagged. It's not, it just doesn't follow a, a constant rotation. It, it is chopped up in a very artful way. He has said that he recorded it over a loop, I think, that he put the drumbeat on a loop and then just kind of scattered fake English to himself in a booth. And then once he had what he liked, he got the orchestra in there. And it's phenomenal, because it's not, it would be extremely hard to do this intentionally. <laughs> and you know that what he had to do then 
in order to ever perform this song was to back engineer what he'd said. This could, you couldn't have, you couldn't scat this the same way twice. You had to just do a take, call it done, and then listen to it a bunch and figure out what you said. Maybe get a uh, intern in here to, to write down the lyrics. And there are other voices on the track. There are there's a chorus of voices that come in and, and say, um, I I slides and says Nick is a go and Mason solo something it, eyes. In the clip that was uh, impossible to miss on the internet in our day, it's a uh, he's doing it on some variety show, and there's a bunch of uh, backup singers or dancers dressed as primary school students yeah. sitting at their desks doing these background parts in unison in these incredible pastel colored outfits, dayglow clothes. So he performed it. Famously, at least twice on Italian television in its own time, not uh, in 72, but like 73, 74, 75. And this was an era. So Italian television, like European television and American television in the 60s, uh, the television stations built enormous sound stages. In fact, here in Seattle, we just tore down the old King 5 television studios yep. that were... Huge, huge soundstage. You could put on, uh, you could basically build a set and do all of Hamlet there. What were they doing, these local TV channels? They just, TV had a lot of money, and this was how you made a television show. If you think about the Johnny Carson show in Burbank or, you know, a, a soundstage was a place that you could put on a big, big It's show. supposed to be cavernous. And in particular, in Europe, you would have television stations that were state-controlled, right? In Italy, the the RAI was the main state television channel. It was called, it's named now RAI, the uh, Radio Televisione Italiana. Uh, I think it still has like the, the largest share of Italian viewers, even though, you know, Italian television is sort of criticized for being very political and very, not like American news programs. They were ahead of us in having some you know, terrible media magnet take over the country as well as the airwaves. But they had the ability to put on these nighttime variety shows where they got in a studio audience of 800 people and built a huge set and had big dance routines. Yeah, different and, set for every dance number. Um, so the premier television appearance of um, Prison Cole and Ensign Cusel was filmed on one of these sound stages in black and white and featured dozens of dancers doing a very involved dance routine where Celentano was dressed as a hobo wearing a tattered hat on a, a patched overcoat over a bare chest. I guess as the song means nothing, he really can, he could, he could do it as the monster mash. He could do a space themed one. It doesn't really matter. That's right. And there is a female voice that appears in the song, in the recording of the song. And that voice is his wife, Claudia More, or Mori. Uh, and she was an Italian actress that was also famous as an actress and singer. He, uh, he left his wife or girlfriend the day they met and ran off. They got married in the night. He, I think, started directing her in films. Like they had a, a passionate, creative relationship. 
And in our day, they're still together in their 54th year. Right. They had a, uh, their daughter actually appeared in the Passion of the Christ. Is that right? Their, their, their daughter is she, the devil in the Passion of the Christ with Mel Gibson. Wait. Yeah. The, the, the devil is a woman in Mel Gibson's movie? Yeah. That seems a little on the nose even for Mel Gibson. Well... Look, man, he sees through the curtain in ways that you and I cannot. Future links to know that Mel Gibson was a uh, beloved anti-Semite in our time who <laughs> died tragically when a Jewish piano fell on him at some point. <laughs> but uh, so she appears in the track. Now, in the first television appearance, an actress by the name of Rafaela Cara, who was, I think, most well-known to... American viewers or to, you know, English language viewers as the woman who, the female protagonist in the movie Von Ryan's Express starring Frank Sinatra. Right. I was going to say Rafael Caro actually had a English career, American career. Yeah. Unlike perhaps uh, yeah, she, anybody else connected with this song. She came over to Hollywood and had a little, had her run here, but she appears in that first music video and it's a, a huge dance production. Is she the devil? She No, she's a blonde lady in a pantsuit. And Celentano has this signature hip swivel move where he does this dance that seems very simple to do. But if you ever try it, and I highly recommend that you seek this video out and try this dance, you're like pop, you know, you're like swaying your hip and kind of snapping your finger and and it's very challenging to get that rhythm right and to have it have your body be as involved in it as his is and as this cast of dancers is in this broadcast. Um, and she, Raffaella, does this dance kind of just as well, lip syncs the female part. It's an enormous show. And it's all they also in the soundstage like rolled out a hall of mirrors. Like there are mirrors playing a big role in how it's done. It's funny how America loves these kind of splashy variety shows from overseas. You know, we'll just watch the Mexican or Japanese ones, but we cannot sustain one on our own. No, no. And well, and what's astonishing about this performance is that this song has no lyrics. Mm -hmm. It's gibberish. And he's dressed as a hobo in a hall of mirrors with a bunch of beautiful dancers all in like spangly unitards, bell-bottom unitards. None of that is explained. None of it is, none of it needs to be explained. It's the beauty of the variety show. It just is. And he is like a Jerry Lewis type. He's a physical comedian. So there's something in his whole performance that's a little bit like slouchy and tongue, but, but he's not tongue in cheek. He's fully earnest in this presentation and the production is earnest and the audience receives it earnestly, even though it's all it's nonsensical. Do, but to an Italian audience, is it as nonsensical as it is to our ear? Like, do they think, hey, he's just uh, singing one of the kind of American-sounding pop songs we often hear? So this is, the, uh, this is a great question. If Led Zeppelin appeared on this same television show and played Stairway to Heaven to the vast majority of people in the studio listening, it would sound just like, there's a cool there's a bustle in your hedgerow. I mean, it doesn't make any sense to us either. There's a bustle in your hedgerow? Don't be alarmed. It's just a spring clean for the May Queen. So you're saying it's just as uh, it's just as gibberish to them as it is to us. Yeah, although it's just a spring clean for the May Queen. That makes perfect sense. What that's, about the Sergeant Major? Is he, is he not involved? Uh, no, the Sergeant Major does not come into it, but there are hobbits. <laughs> uh, so the song is a hit in its own time. Yeah, it's number one hit uh, in much of Europe, I think. Celentano said France, Germany, Belgium, Luxembourg, not just Italy. And in a way, it and this is part of its 
why it has had a renaissance in recent years. Uh, because it it presages, how would you say that? Presage? Presages? It presages. Does it, you're saying it to rhyme with dressage. Well, let's say it presages. I, I, I would say presages, but I guess presages is, what is your... Uh, it is presage also, presage. Oh, okay. So Merriam-Webster is allowing you to do you. Thank you. It presages. No, it presages. It, pres it presages <laughs> um, both disco yes. in that it has a kind of hard beat looping beat. track and also rap because it's largely spoken, uh, almost entirely spoken. Yeah, when he talked about improvising the, the, the verse over a, uh, a looped beat, I was thinking, yeah, we have a whole school of music now that just does that. Right. Is it calling me? Maybe is it come across time? Dun, 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 dun. Chicken in the head said, say, oh, baby, a bra, so do worst. I mean, he is putting like notes in there, but it's more, it's more spoken, spoken than yeah. sung. And there are the little break beats mm -hmm. in between. Bam, dun, 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 have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. Uh, so it's a very forward sounding tune um, that to our contemporary ears sounds, I mean, just as novel. And it was a hit for him and it kind of established him in a different, like a, a different way in Italian culture. He was often a guest on television programs. He, he released dozens of albums in his career. And if you watch any of the old Italian TV shows where he appears, there is a, like a kind of lovable awkwardness to the man. Like he's handsome. He's very sexy in an Italian way and also self-effacing. He's just sort of charming in a, a, people have compared him to Jim Carrey, but he doesn't have that Jim Carrey. There's no nothing frantic about him. Mm -hmm. He's very just sort of like louche and unaffected. What about the issue of, you know, we're fine with him making fun of English because we're the English-speaking cultural imperialists. So he's punching up, right? But you know, what do you think when you see somebody like? Have you ever seen Sid Caesar do his? Uh, 50s comedian Sid Caesar from your show of shows do his double talk routine where he just can switch to it from faux French to faux Spanish to faux Polish. Have you ever seen this? No. Good <laughs> 
Sid Caesar uh, learned how to do this in his dad's restaurant in Yonkers as a kid, where um, you know he would just go from table to table, do busing or whatever, and he would hear the Polish guys talking, and then the Bohe- the Czech guys talking, and then the Italian table. And he started just go up, and he'd go to a bunch of Italian guys and just do it, uh-huh. you know? Like, <laughs> you know, to see what they would say. Yeah. And for a while, they'd be like, wait, what part of Italy is this kid from? And then they'd get it, and they would laugh. And it became a big part of his act. And, you know, you don't have any problem with an, an English speaker doing that with French. But, you know, he would go on talk shows and do Chinese, for example. And then it was a little uncomfortable well, because he, then there's a racial angle. Time, times have obviously changed as we, when we think about that type of thing now. Uh, an example of this in my own life, there was a, um, a Japanese exchange student at my college who barely, barely spoke English. And at one point, his roommate, we were all sitting around getting drunk. And it was always kind of a challenge because you know, if you have somebody from Europe there, you at least have romance language sort of root words that common loan words that you might recognize. Right. But when you're talking to someone who only speaks Japanese, there's it's, I mean, all you can do is hope that there's some culture that you have in common. Mm -hmm. But so my, uh, my friend, his roommate was saying, okay, when we imitate a Japanese person, when we're like playing world war two movie or we're, you know, or, or Godzilla, we go like, oh, haso, you know, chop suey. Um, what do you do in Japan? And he, it took a second for him to understand what we were asking. You know, we kept doing this little like. That to him probably sounds yeah. nothing like Japanese. Sushi, teriyaki. <laughs> and eventually he was like, oh, I get it. Right? And he kind of skewed himself up, stood up, squared his shoulders off like John Wayne, and said, hamburger, hamburger, bang, bang. <laughs> and. Obviously, we like we loved that and walked around saying hamburger, hamburger, bang, bang for another ten years. It's very telling. Yeah. Like we are kind of living in the hamburger, hamburger. We're the tail end of the hamburger, hamburger, bang, bang era of the ha- American Empire. Hamburger, hamburger, bang, bang. We're we're more into the bang than the hamburger at this but, point. But it's a very natural thing to do for a human being when encountering another culture to mimic the to sounds. Mimic. That's Cause, right. Because there's a rhythm that you can hear. Uh, speaking of Japan, like when I watch um, kind of family anime movies with my kids, like, you know, nothing weird with robots and tentacles, but, you know, Miyazaki and all these kind of benignly weird (laughs) Japanese folk tales. Sure. No tentacles. Yeah. Right. Leave it at that. We're a hentai free (laughs) rec room. Um, But all these things end with kind of this kind of lilting, soppy pop song, you know, and it's always like, Kashime, Suriko. You know, and so I always just, when the pop music song starts, I always like start doing like my impression of what it's going to be like. And my kids are like, dad, you can't do that. Right. You know, you can't do that anymore. Uh, And it's because I assume we poisoned the well by like doing these terrible, you know, ching, ching, chong, making, making kind of a, the rhythm of an Asian language into a caricature of an Asian person. Well, it's Mickey Rooney at Breakfast at Tiffany's right. is what ruined it for everybody. But it is a Or John Wayne and the Conqueror. It is a very natural thing for human beings to do. I mean, my daughter, we live in Seattle, right? Then we have a large Asian population. I have an office in Chinatown. You live in the most diverse zip code in America. I'm, I do live in told. the most diverse zip code in America. And so my daughter is exposed to a lot of people speaking different Asian languages and her absolute natural impulse is to try and make those sounds. And does it sound like a terrible 50s 
Ching Ching Chong. It just sounds like a, it just sounds like a little kid, but because of the the um, uh, the atmosphere of our modern day, like I can, I'm very embarrassed, right? If we're out in a restaurant and she starts to do, you know, like there's something on television that reminds her of a, of some anime that we've watched and she starts to do her little Japanese, you know, that's not a thing that you can have your kid do in a public space, even though it's completely intuitive to them. She doesn't, she's not trying to colonize them and I didn't teach it to her. But so Celentano, I mean, America is, the relationship the rest of the world has had to America through pop music and Hollywood. Think of all the English they hear. So much and how much they're expected to know and understand. Because when the Rolling Stones come on, like it, it's the Rolling Stones. You can't say, oh, there's an Italian rock band that we prefer because we understand the lyrics better. It's er like Eros Ramazzotti. <laughs> it's like, no, I'm afraid the Rolling Stones uh, are doing that. And no one else is, you know, no one else is close in any language. Yeah, I was, uh, we were visiting some, the family of some friends on the Oland Islands once between Sweden and Finland. As you do. <laughs> As you do. And, uh, you know, talking to these kids, you know, cousins of our friends, and they spoke just this flawless, unaccented English, even the, uh, you know, the young ones. Yeah. And then you'd talk to them for a while and you'd realize their grammar and their vocabulary and stuff was not that great. You know, they'd study, I'm sure they were going to study English for 10 more years of their primary and secondary educations and they would become flawless English speakers. But as kids, their grammar and vocabulary were pretty lousy, but they just had this flawless accent from all the music lyrics and the subtitled TV shows and movies that they had spent their whole life watching. They could do the Prison nine and I just said it wrong. Prison colon and prison colon and Cusel. You know they, they could do that in English. Well, and and there's a big difference in countries that are large enough to afford dubbing. Dubbing, right? So that people in France don't speak English, even though they consume English television and movies, because France is big enough that they dub it into French, and so all the television shows, all the sitcoms, all the films they watch in French. But the world has, you know, three million Swedish speakers or whatever it right. is. Right. And so the Dutch, for instance, speak fluent English because there just aren't enough Dutch people to dub all these television shows into Dutch. It's actually 10 million Swedes. I don't want to get angry letters from the, well, but know, that's, the Ikea robots of the That's future. a lot fewer than the 80 million French. Exactly. Um, and Italy is somewhere in between there. But, mo but mostly uh, Italian television and films are dubbed in Italian. Uh, and they also had a big, you know, filmmaking culture. We do consume Italian films if we're smart enough. And we don't have a culture much of dubbing, luckily. No, mostly if we're watching a foreign film, we are already sophisticated enough That's to watch it. That's what I was going to say. The kind of the Americans that want their, their foreign movies dubbed are not, you know, they have plenty of options that are not foreign films. The, the one different, uh, the one exception being Japanese cartoons. Right. Uh, speed Racer or whatever. Or, oh, Speed! Or the martial arts movies, right. you know, where... Because that's lowbrow entertainment, and so we want it. We don't care that the lips don't sync up. You would think that nonsense is nonsense, but that's not true. Have you ever read um, the Jabberwocky translated into different languages? No. It's a, it's a great exercise, you know, because we think of, you know, Twas Brillig and the Slithy Toves did Gyre and Gimble in the Wave. You know, you think of that as just sounds, you know, but it's really not. Um, those are words with shades of meaning and, right. uh, and a kind of feel that a, a translator could kind of duplicate. And, you know, there are translations of the Jabberwocky into that maintain dozens its of languages. 
Um, in French, you can maintain the, the cadence. Uh, il brigo l'étove le brisiu sigerant evriant dans le grave, et mime son le gouge boscu et le momrad or grave. Uh-huh. Um, in Spanish, you can't do it because, again, you've got the penultimate syllable thing, right. and words tend to expand, so they're a lot longer. But it's really beautiful. You know, it's not one, two, one, two, and through and through the vorpal blade went snicker snack. It's undo, undo, par le milieu, le glaive vorpal ve parapan. And I assume these made up words are doing what the English words do, you know. Sure, uh, communicating the, the suggestion. I'm sure, you know, if slithy, for example, is supposed to convey lithe and slimy. Right. I assume lubricieux is a French word that somehow has within it lubricious. I guess that's slimy. Right. And then some word that means lithe. Or wait, I don't know which, what does lubricious even mean? Uh, lubricious would be, it's at the same root as lubri- lubricant. Yeah, you're right. right. Smooth and slippery with yeah. oil or a similar substance. Yeah. So uh, almost exactly what you would think of as lithe and slimy. So yeah, generated words. So, so a translator is actually having to think, what is the French word for borogov? Or what's the Hebrew word for vorpal? Right. Well, and I feel like lubricious is a word that we, that certainly I might accidentally coin just in trying to pronounce an actual word. It sounds like a dignified old guy at a barbershop. Uh, lubricious, on, tell us what you think about. Well, the, his name or just to say like, put on some of that lubricious ointment. I guess that too. <laughs> but I mean, his name could be lubricious for lubricious, all I Lubricious, put on some lubricious pop tunes. Uh, Prison colon ensign Cusel was, good. was lo- thank you for that. It's a transition, uh, an abrupt one, but a literal one. I was applauding your pronunciation, not your segue. Ah, Prison colon ensign Cusel. Very good is a tune that I was introduced to by Sasha Frere Jones, the really? uh, New Yorker music critic, whom I had the good fortune to meet one time. For years, I read Sasha Frere Jones and assumed that with a name like that, writing music criticism for the New Yorker, that Sasha Frere Jones would be someone with a very exotic ethnicity, probably with like blonde dreadlocks, wearing a caftan of some kind, a New York critic who went to Bryn Mawr. I absolutely thought that it was a woman. (laughs) And then I was at a cocktail party and someone said, oh, John, have you ever met Sasha? And we talked for a minute. And then a third person was like, you know, this is Sasha Frere Jones. And I was knocked on my butt because Sasha Frere Jones is a thin white American man handsome and smart and not really old either, like a contemporary of ours. And he discovered this track and wrote a review in The New Yorker in 2008 that just called your attention to it. Like, I found this track. I want everyone to know about it. It's really great. And he pointed to a video, which was a mashup of the two television appearances that Celentano had done. The one of the black and white dance routine in the Hall of Mirrors. And it's literally black and white TV, right? Black it's not, and white it's not just a black and white set. Okay, so you're switching between that and the Dayglow. And then a Dayglow color episode of TV where he's in a room with a bunch of really beautiful Italian actresses who are all dressed in pigtails and miniskirts as though an elementary school classroom. Th- they're all hot for teacher. Super hot. And he's so like... So your subconscious directed that video, basically. And he's weirdly wearing like a black trench coat. I mean, not what you would think of, but he's up there pretending to be the teacher mm-hmm. and like calling on girls. And in fact, his wife, Claudia Mori, appears in that 
video. She stands up. He calls on her. Oh, she's one of the girls. And she stands up in the back and recites her line from the track. And you can hear the studio audience applaud. And so the mashup of these two videos creates this weird experience. You have this song that you can't comprehend, or at least I couldn't in 2008. And then this video that seems to be describing a world that transitions from black and white to color and then back again. And this man at the center of it, who's both handsome, but also kind of um, like rough hewn, hewn directly from the earth. And then with this, this swagger kind of uh, this dance, this ability to dance that you don't see so often in, in anybody. It's almost like Prince, if Prince was a little bit stockier. Uh, and it blew my mind. And I became a devotee of this song. I listened to it over and over. So much so that someone from the internet who listened to my podcast at the time, Roderick on the Line, which surely has survived to this day, to the future. Well, they're never going to listen to this one if they've the, got like the thousands of racks. hours of Roderick on the Line. <laughs> uh, someone on the internet found the original 45 of it, uh, purchased it for me and sent it to me. Like it, I, from Italy? Yeah, I oh, have it. Great. I have it in my home uh, uh, framed upstairs. Prison colon Ensign Cusel 45. And it doesn't sound the same because every time you compress this track through whatever MP3 delivery system you have, it, it always takes on a different quality. Something else pokes out. So in 2008, Sasha Freire Jones kind of drew a larger audience to it. And then in 2012... That was when Corey, Dr. O got his mitts on it? Yeah, it really exploded onto the scene. It became scene. an internet thing. It was, it went on boing boing and was really widely disseminated and was then remixed. Uh, an additional kind of hard-hitting drum track was put on it. There have been several bands that have tried to cover it. American bands? Yeah, that have tried to learn it kind of verbatim, uh, what would the Phonetically? point? Yeah, what would the point of covering that song even be? Well, it's such a cool track, and I think it appeals to people primarily. I mean, it appeals to musicians and also, I think, the general listener, just because it's a really strong cut. But it's a strong cut. You know, it's not the kind of song where you're like, I bet I could put my spin on this. No, that's right. Your cover is going to be pretty literal. You're not going to do like an acoustic ballad of it. Although, wow, what a good idea, Ken. That's what we should do. That should be the Prison new theme song of the show. Colon, Ensign, and Cuso. Just do like a country ballad of it. Yeah, I think it could be kind of a David Gates bread kind of a thing going on. Some AM gold. <laughs> so now that actually uh, revitalized its popularity in Italy. It had kind of been lost to time. And Italians became aware of it as a viral internet meme. And it reestablished interest. And uh, Celitano is still alive. He's 80 years old. And he actually went out and did the rounds of all the talk shows. And, you know, it kind of like gave him a little late in life, um, like the spotlight turned once again to Prison Colon Ensign Cusel. He lived to see the internet resurrect him like an Italian Rick Astley. Yeah. Yeah. And he and his wife both still alive and both like with an enormous career platinum records by the handful and starring film roles and, you know, uh, and yet perhaps in the West best remembered for this kooky novelty track. Well, if you're going to leave a legacy, it's not a bad one. Uh, prison colon, Ensign and Cusel, all right.
And that concludes Prison Colon Ensenine Cusel, entry 988.1C1423, certificate number 35645, in the omnibus. In the unlocally... In the unlocally? In the unlocally sourced vegetables that I eat. In the unlikely event that the social media platforms of our day have existed into yours. First of all, we apologize. But second of all, know that we were devoted to getting the word out, to creating an academic platform for our research here at the Omnibus Project. And we were at Omnibus Project on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I tweeted as at Ken Jennings. John was on Twitter and Instagram as at John Roderick. There was a Facebook group of like-minded scholars and enthusiasts that you could find by searching for Futurelings. We were even available via email, if you can believe that. Oh, boy. In fact, I encourage you to go back in time and read our emails, which are surely archived in your future library of whatever your democratic institution is. Library of... Hopefully it has a library. Library of Congress. Well, or like museums probably will be the main employer of futurelings. They'll all work in museums or coal mines. We were available uh, at first by telegraph, then later telex and fax, and finally by email at omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com. Futurelings from our vantage point many, many millennia prior, uh, we have no idea whether our civilization survived, how it morphed into your culture. Hopefully superior world. Yeah, uh, it could be that the only person listening to this show is a future adolescent working on a book report. But we hope and pray that we survive, that Ken and I live long, productive, healthy lives, and that our children grow to adulthood in a world that is fair and just, where there's plenty to eat and everyone has very healthy hair. Wouldn't that be nice? And that their children and their children's children survive and that our culture is remembered fondly as a kind of renaissance period and for its good hair but uh we fear this may not in fact be the case and if um if the worst comes soon which we cannot know we hope that this recording survives unto you but if this is our final word so be it hope you liked it Prison colon ensign on cues. I'll help yours. We did what we could. <laughs> we saved the longest uh, word for last. But uh, if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.